Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Fit podcast, where it's my job to help you apply knowledge that is both scientific and practical into your own life to maximize your physique development and your overall body, as well as your mind. The combination of these two things is what makes you Beyond Fit. Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to the Beyond Fit Podcast. My guest today is Pat Flynn. He's someone I've shared some emails back and forth with over the last couple of weeks. I first heard him on, well, most recently, a couple of times on Mike Matthews' Muscle for Life podcast, which I've talked about always being a big fan of. And interestingly, Mike likes to have guests on and kind of talk about things that are outside the realm of fitness. But what resonates with me is that it's still things that are just about how to live productively, how to live ethically, how to live morally. What are these questions that we have? Because one interesting thing that I found that I think Pat would agree on is that once you start to refine and master your fitness and just anyone who likes to focus on that area of their life seems to be focused on all these other big, you know, meaning of life sort of questions. It's funny how that stuff kind of works in tandem. Um, so I'll guess, I guess, first of all, I'd like Pat to kind of give a little bit of an introduction on his end. Um, I know that <clears throat> you have been doing your podcast and posting online for quite a while. So kind of like what was the motive behind that? And just like a short uh, little introduction on, you know, who you are, I guess. Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me on, Jake. Super cool to be here. And yeah, the brief history of Pat Flynn. Let's see here. Um, I am in the fitness industry a fair amount, but that is not my, my formal background. I am a, I'm a philosopher by education. Uh, my, my undergrad was actually economics and finance, master's was philosophy. So, you know, academically, formally, that's always been my, my major area. Um, but when I went to college, um, a few years prior, I had uh, really just gotten into fitness and martial arts. So I grew up very unhealthy, very overweight, a lot of really bad habits, right? Uh, typical story. Got fed up with it, um, you know, had, had a number of friends growing up, wasn't, um, you know, wasn't like a complete um, loner or anything like that. But my friends always, you know, they always picked on me because I was a chubby kid in the group, right? Mm -hmm. So that, 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 that weighs on you. Um, so I didn't want to go to the weight room uh, because that's where all my friends were. And as soon as I walked in there, I know I was catching up but crap, right? So I went to a martial arts studio. I went to a Taekwondo studio. This was early high school. And uh, I, just, I just got an awesome coach. Uh, who just taught me, you know, so much good stuff right at the start about fitness, about nutrition. So that that really ignited my passion there. So that way, when I went to college as a way to pay my bills, I just started getting my trainer certs, teaching classes, personal training. And as it happened, I was always uh, into writing, uh, always loved writing. So I started a blog. Uh, long story short, before I was out of college, I had a couple of book deals with for, with uh, with Wiley for Dummy Series. Mm -hmm. And I had enough of a following online that I'm like, okay, I, I think maybe I could make a career of this. And I just went in that direction ever since and have never looked back. And here we are on Jake's podcast. Okay. So I'm curious. I know that I heard you say before that you got into fitness around the age of 18. Is that correct? Probably a little bit. Yeah, it was before that. So um, I would say, yeah, I started like getting formally certified and, okay. and stuff like that around 18. But when I first really started working out and taking fitness seriously was, what would that have been? Yeah, my, somewhere around my freshman or sophomore year of high school when I first okay. went to that Taekwondo yeah. studio. 
right yeah so where a lot of guys kind of get started too I'm, I'm also curious when you say that um you know the first sort of mentor that you had gave you so much helpful and useful information did you ever feel like you fell into these typical like bro sciency or pseudoscience traps when it ever came to fitness or health extra uh, nutrition anything like that yeah no i think i've always had a um an advantage there because of that coach, but I'll give you a, an example that is um, somewhat to what you're you're talking about, and that is, you know, growing up in my own household, my own parents, especially my my mother, who I of course love dearly. Uh, she and my whole family has struggled with with weight issues, right? So I've got a number of people in my family, especially on my mom's side, who are morbidly obese. So just to give you an idea of where I'm coming from. So I remember growing up on my mom's bookshelf, there was every fad diet book mm. that you could ever imagine, right? And so typical, my mom, right? yeah, yeah, very typical, right? So my mom was always uh, on again, off again with various diet protocols. So I grew up watching her kind of buy into any new flashy, shiny thing, you know, started up for one, two weeks, immediately fall away. Uh, and just, just this continual cycle, which I'm sure you and all your listeners are very familiar with. So um, I saw that growing up and I realized, you know, whatever my course is going to be, I definitely don't want it to be that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and my mom was actually a really good influence in all the kind of odd ways in the sense of like she smokes, um, been other issues. Right. So, but she was always honest with me when I was growing up. She said, you know, son, don't learn from my mistakes. Right. Don't do the things that I'm doing. I'm telling you, this mm -hmm. isn't, I might not have all the answers of how to avoid this or how to do it right, but she always was really great about that. So even though um, she couldn't point to any books or information that would set me on the right path, she was always very you know, open about the struggles that she had and set a, a very kind of peculiar but ultimately good example in that sense. So that way when I found somebody who did know what they were doing, I think I was inclined to, to take that more seriously and that uh, – and like I said, that gave me an advantage because from there, not like I had everything figured out from the start, of course not, but it, I think it helped me to kind of see through a lot of the, well, a lot of the BS in the industry, mm -hmm. right? A lot of the gimmicks, a lot of the fads, just to have a good coach mentor who knew his stuff and could just teach me those fundamental principles, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the reason, the biggest reason I asked is because like the, the most salient part of my own story is that for so long, you know, I, I really started lifting weights and getting into wanting to not necessarily bodybuild per se, but building my body when I was about 13 or 14. And it was just this constant focus that I had. I was probably a little bit too obsessive um, during my teenage years, but the biggest struggle for me was just falling into all these, like I said, bro science myths. It was probably around the 2010-ish uh, timeframe and so, as you probably remember, that was like a, a big fad at the time was like the bodybuilding.com forums. And so that's basically oh, I where do. I got mm -hmm. all my information. And so I just fell victim to all this stuff, you know, eat every two to three hours, shock the muscle, you know, you name it, I probably fell victim to it. And so that's what I most enjoy trying to help people get past these days, because even though there's a lot more good and relevant information out there, it seems like I, I especially love working with people that are my age. And I just uh, started last month, started this coaching business. And I, I love to work with people that are in their 20s, grew up around the same time as me, have enjoyed lifting weights, but still kind of get caught up on these, these myths and these frustrations. And then it's funny that you mentioned like your, your mom and her focus on the fad diets and stuff like that, because I have a client um, now who's more 
of a beginner and is just kind of trying to learn some healthy principles, get a little bit more fit. And he's like, see, I just never really had any guidance from my family because for us eating healthy was, you know, eating margarine or eating low fat this or low fat that. And people just don't understand what it means to have a balanced and healthy diet because it's just not something that's ever, to, to my knowledge, been really prioritized in the mainstream culture at all. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I had this, this interesting kind of lead by negative example, and it wasn't just the, the fat diets. It was all the supplements too, mm -hmm. all the gadgets, all the gizmos, like the stuff would just constantly come to the house. Right. Um, I'm sure there's still some of it around in the basement somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, to your point, yeah, to your point, um, did I buy into some of the conventional wisdom that might not have a lot of support behind it? Like eat protein every two hours. Yeah, I probably did that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I guess I would differentiate stuff that is somewhat unsupported, but maybe not the worst thing in the world to do. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Versus stuff that is clearly just not true, crazy or counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Right. I could think of worse things that people could do than have a protein serving every two hours. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Even if that isn't necessary for making certain gains. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I haven't thought too much about that specifically. So yeah, I probably did as just assume some of that conventional or mainstream uh, dieting advice. Um, and you know, like there's always, you know, in, in things that take off, uh, that's always, it's kind of an interesting, you know, um, thing to observe. Things that really take off, there's, there's almost always something true about it, right? It's not, yeah, al it's exactly. not almost ever completely false. There's all like, like at the end of the day, yeah, it's good. Like protein, we know in the research is, is a hinge factor. Like if you increase protein, good things tend to happen, especially for weight loss and stuff like that. So yeah, I guess, I guess then it comes down to just, yeah, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Be mm -hmm. willing to kind of sift through the various claims, see what's good in this, see what's false and just roll up your sleeves and do the work. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something I try to talk about all the time on the podcast is helping people to differentiate between correlation and causation, you know, just because someone went on the keto diet, and they lost X amount of weight or had, you know, this or that happened to them. It's not because of the diet. And just like someone, you know, because they started taking a supplement, say like a fat burner and, you know, got this placebo effect and lost 20 pounds. What does it necessarily mean that the fat burner caused that? So I think that one of the really important things that you have seemed to have a grasp on, and I guess I'm kind of curious where this started to come into play in your life, was this thinking objectively. Maybe in my mind, you obviously are skilled in that now. And so I'm curious if like, even as a teenager, you had this ability to think more objectively and could kind of see, um, maybe, maybe that's why you weren't as susceptible as someone like me to fall into these myths because you could sort out what was the proper information. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I've always had, uh, an inherent, um, I guess, skeptical attitude, which mm -hmm. can be, which can be useful, but can also be a detriment because sometimes skeptics aren't skeptical of their own skepticism. Right sure you've seen these types of people mm -hmm. and that was probably me for a while so just just yeah just being generally skeptical isn't isn't enough and you can often be skeptical of the wrong things so it helps it helped me in some respects earlier on i think it, it hurt me in other respects by shutting off other possibilities that i eventually learned were true uh or that i dismissed too quickly either in fitness or, or other areas by by doing by being unduly skeptic rather than rather than saying let me look at the actual evidence. Let me bear it out, right? Um, if anything, I probably had too much of an attitude of just hand-waving and dismissing things um, just, just because I was initially skeptical of something. And that's mm -hmm. certainly not virtuous. So 
yeah, maybe I maybe I tended towards the other extreme a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the, there's the extremes of just kind of buying into everything, but then there's the other other extreme of maybe just dismissing too many things, not giving things a fair enough hearing. Um, and both both are not good, right? Like what we want to do is we want to just be able to just look at a position as dispassionately as possible. And none of us can ever be completely dispassionate. That's a myth. We all engage in motivated reasoning and biasing, but we can try to be aware of that and, and try to, as best as we can, um, approach you know a topic or a subject with as much objectivity as possible. Realize that there's always a chance we, we will fail to see clearly. And then just do that over and over again. I did a podcast recently where I, I talked about this when it comes to truth. Um, and this is, this is kind of more of a philosophical point, but it certainly applies mm -hmm. to fitness is you're, you're, and it sounds obvious, but you're much more likely to hit a target if you're actually aiming for it. Mm -hmm. What is that? I mean, like, that's such an obvious thing, but what do I mean by that? Um, I mean that if you don't make truth, your, your target, there's like, and like intentionally, like from the start, if you don't make just, I want to know the truth about things, your target. There's other things that will unintentionally become your target, right? Such as affirming things you already believe or wanting to prove yourself right in an online argument, your ego or your pride. So that prior intention um, or just wanting to, to signal that you're a skeptic, right? That mm -hmm. could be another thing of just wanting to show people how open-minded you are. Yeah, rather like an outcome in itself. The, yeah, right. And all of these things are, are barriers, I think, to good thinking good truth so you have to kind of make a, a promise to yourself and just yourself a sort of pro internal thing of just like i just want to know the truth about things and i'm willing to have my positions challenged i'm, I'm willing to you know uh get uncomfortable i suppose and that that's a hard thing to do i don't want to make it seem like that's something that i'm and myself a master at i think i do the best i can and there were periods of my life where i had to seriously reevaluate that but i I, I want people to appreciate that is not an easy thing to do. It just, it just isn't in fitness or any other area of life. It's not an easy thing to do, but it can be done. It mm -hmm. can be done. So how do you go about like, I think another one of the things I, I hit on repeatedly on the podcast is like knowledge is useless without application. So when you talk about wanting to seek truth, you know, I think that if you, if you pulled any random person on the street and said, do you, do you want to know the truth? You try to know the truth. They'd go, yes, you know, of course. But how do you kind of hold yourself accountable and make sure you have um, things implemented into your daily life that help you to try to seek the truth and help you to have a well-rounded perspective? Right. Yeah. Well, I, so that's interesting. You say the, the usefulness of knowledge. We can go back to Aristotle. He's got different you know, categories of knowledge, There's speculative knowledge, practical knowledge, stuff like that. But your general point is one that's, that's well appreciated and understood. Um, but now I forgot what you said. So how do you, how do you make knowledge useful? Was that your like, question? Do you have, I, not necessarily, like how do you, when you say that your value is going about seeking truth, what are a few ways that jump to mind of like on a daily or, you know, weekly, monthly occurrence, I have these staples in my life that help me to not get too, you know, dogmatic in my thinking or not get too much, you know, not get too focused in on the wrong thing. Like, you know, just trying to, again, just be, uh, a skeptic just for the sake of it. Yeah. So, I mean, one is just understanding. Um, I, I think the modern psychology around motivated reasoning is very important, right? And this is something that people have always known, but modern psychology helps us to put terms on it. Motivated reasoning is one of these barriers to truth that I've, I've talked about. Um, 
friend of mine, Dr. Michael Rhoda, has a paper coming out on motivated reasoning and actually the history of slavery, because what he's exploring is we look back on, on slavery now and we think like, this is a disaster. How could anybody have ever defended this, right, or, or practiced it? And um, the truth is, obviously, people did, right? And they thought that there was mm -hmm. nothing wrong with it and they would have arguments, sometimes very clever arguments in favor of slavery. And uh, what my friend uh, Mike explores in that paper is the psychology of motivated reasoning of, of, of how it would have applied back then. And there's certain biases that we have. And one, of, one bias we have is always wanting to see ourselves as a good person. So if there's ever a challenge to us, uh, to our worldview or position that we hold, that might have ethical implications that could, that could involve us doing something that's wrong, our bias is always going to be, that can't be right, right? Mm -hmm. I can't, no, I'm a good person. See, that can't, be, that can't be right. I can't be engaged in something that's wrong. Or if it's not us, family members or friends, right? So you could see how this could, could, could play into something like slavery. You grow up in this culture and maybe you own slaves, you know, somebody that does, and somebody who's brave enough to speak out uh, challenges a position. You could see how the motivated reasoning could kick in. So that's one bias that we have. There's a number of biases that are identified. But then there's also processes that sort of sustain the motivated reasoning. One of them, is just selective memory use. We're very good at dumping into our own memory and pulling out certain memories that affirm what we already believe and kind of just not looking at those memories that don't mm -hmm. affirm what we believe. Another one is a process known as differential stopping, where, and everyone's probably familiar with this, you might, you know, if you're being honest, I'm sure you'll raise your hand and say guilty as charged, I certainly will, where you'll look into a position only to the extent that it affirms what you already believe and then stop yeah. your research, right? That's known as differential stopping. So like, have all you ever, this have you seen, yeah, have you, yeah. I, I just think it's funny. Uh, there's this like meme that I'm familiar with where it's like someone's typing into Google and it'll just say like what I want to believe, you know, that's what it reminds me of. Right. right. And like these are, the, so now here's, now here's a good thing. The, the researchers on motivated reasoning, they don't conclude that this stops you from finding truth. That isn't what they conclude at all. So you don't have to be a total skeptic. You don't have to be totally pessimistic. Their conclusions are generally just, be aware of these things, understand that these are biases that we fight, and do your best not to let them get in the way. And so I guess that's, that's my, my general piece of advice there is be aware of the things that can block sight. When you set your intention on truth, be aware of the things that might get in the way of you hitting that target. Motivated reasoning is one. Another is social conformity or social pressures, right? Manufactured consent is sometimes what it's what uh, Noam Chomsky would call it, right? We don't want to fall from manufactured consent or what's called a Castro consensus, where consensus are formed apart from independent free inquiry, either from social or political pressures. And there's many studies that, that show this too, where people will change their opinion on something that was previously true and correct that they formed independently once you put other seeds or, or planted people in the study that, that say the wrong things, but say them confident, right? Mm -hmm. People have this bias to want to fit in, to want to have a seat at the lunch table, so to speak. So manufactured consent, social conformity is, is another big one. Uh, propaganda goes into that. Um, conspiratorial thinking is another thing that can, that can block sight, rational sight. Conspiracies happen all the time. History knows that sometimes big conspiracies have happened. Um, but, you know, people conspire to rob a bank. People conspire to murder. So that, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, large-level conspiratorial thinking that would require multiple points of infiltration, coordination, beyond a point that it strains all credulity, right? It's like mm -hmm. generally we know bureaucracies are utterly inefficient, except for when it comes to this massive global conspiracy, right? 
Um, so these are just things that you, you want to um, just be aware of, um, of just real everyday barriers that we, we all have to struggle. And, and here, here's one other thing I'll point about that is what, you know, is a very interesting and paradoxical thing is people just assume if they're more educated or intelligent, they're less likely for this to be an issue. And that's not true mm -hmm. at all. In fact, what, 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 what a lot of the research shows is that the more intelligent or educated you are, the more susceptible you may be to cognitive blind spots, precisely because you're more likely to assume that you're not susceptible. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm smart. So, it couldn't be me. You know, it couldn't be me. Right. Uh, so sometimes the most intelligent and most educated people are the ones who engage the most motivated reasoning. So I don't know if that answers your question, but there's yeah. just a couple of things. Yeah, it, uh, it reminds me of when you talk about like the slavery aspect. There's this quote I really like um, that you've probably heard before from Upton Sinclair that goes, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary is dependent on not understanding it. So again, like that motivated reasoning. <laughs> well, these slaves are my entire family and extended family's you know, source of income. So of course, I'm going to try to think of reasons why this slavery is okay. Right, because truth can be costly. It can be costly just in terms of your own sense of, of moral purity. It can be costly in terms of your career, in terms of your job. Um, so that's why I emphasize um, so much of make your first and primary target truth above all things. Uh, because chances are, you know, in life, you, you probably will hit a position at some point where it's going to cost you, right? Maybe mm -hmm. not your entire career or something like that, but it will cost you in some sense to not just, you know, believe true things, but to say true things, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to stay firm in that. Yeah, 100%. So I'm curious, how do you come upon is something true? I know that's very broad. How have you come upon the mental models, the fallacies? How do you sort through all that stuff without, you know, having to completely deconstruct every idea that you come across? figure out truth. Yeah, that I mean that's a huge philosophical question, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there's two two ways we can kind of think about this. One is uh in philosophy speak we have uh, a study of ontology, which is the study of being or reality as such. Um so we can ask like what what is truth, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I would just say that the truth is being considered by an intellect, right? So Aristotle says um, to say of what is that it is not is to speak a falsehood. To say of what is that it is is to speak a truth, right? And the idea that it, truth, and, a very, and this is also known as the correspondence theory of truth, right, is that um, truth is just telling it like it is. Um, you know, it's conformity of mind to world, right? That's, that's, I think that's the simplest but also the right idea of truth. So that's ontology, right, what truth is. But then what you're getting at is epistemology. How do we know what we know, right? How do, and how do we know if what we know is actually true, is actually knowledge? And knowledge would involve at least the criteria of, of justified true belief. So we would say that, you know, knowledge, it can't just be that our belief is true um, because we might believe true things on accident, right? We also mm -hmm. want to say that we have justification for our beliefs, right? Um, and there's, there's all sorts of criteria for that, right? So, you know, where, where we can dive in on this is, is in, in multiple different areas. And this is, as you might imagine, I mean, there's just endless discussion and debate around the, both of these topics. Um, but I'm trying to figure out, you know, where to, where to make it relevant and interesting for your audience. 
Um, on a practical level, without getting too deep into philosophical weeds, I think just studying logic on a basic in a basic way will will help a lot of people. You know, and because logic really it's a branch of philosophy. Philosophy has many branches. Logic is really the study of the structure of thought. Thought does have a structure, right? There's sort of three acts of, of the mind, famously. And logic is just studying the formal connections of, of how we think, um, rules of inference, common fallacies, common mistakes and reasoning. So even just a, a basic study of logic, you don't have to get an undergrad or a master's degree, but being familiar with the differences between deductive and inductive reasoning, some of the common fallacies, both formal and informal. Um, if nothing else, if nothing else, that, that doesn't say that you'll always arrive at truth. But here's where I think that can be useful. It can be useful because it will it can stop you from arriving at as many falsehoods. Mm-hmm. And I think that itself is as valuable, right? Um, where you can look at something, and this is where I've been suited in the past, where I might be able to look at a technical paper, right, that on some scientific subject area where I'm not an expert. And I might not be able to evaluate all the claims that somebody says because I lack technical expertise. But I could still say whether his argument in general is valid or invalid, whether his conclusion mm-hmm. actually follows from his premises, right? Because I don't need the technical scientific knowledge for that. I just need understanding of how logic works. So I could say, well, even if even all of his claims are true, his conclusion still doesn't follow, right? Or maybe his conclusion or her conclusion does follow. And then what I would have to do is either go and try and gain the technical knowledge to evaluate the claims or find somebody else who does have the technical knowledge mm-hmm. and say, help me help me figure out if this is true or false so on a practical level i would i would say that um get a basic logic book um there's a really good one it's called socratic logic by a philosopher named peter creep um and it'll give you a good introductory overview to logic it's got some good exercise in there um and if you just spend you know just some time with with that book doing the exercises reading through it whenever you have 15 minutes here or there um, again, are you going to be able to, to discern the truth in every particular situation? Probably not. Will that help you from you know, being taken advantage of or, or believing false things? Absolutely, 100%. Does that, does that answer your question, Paul, Jake? Is yeah. that helpful? So like in uh, – you know, I, I dip my toes in philosophy. I'm definitely not on your level, but this is – reminded me of like something I learned about recently, you know, Logos. And basically, like, trying to target someone's just reasoning skills. Like, this is why this works, the, the X and the Y kind of. Right, yeah. So, so Aristotle is big on this, right, in, in rhetoric. Um, and these are different skills. Um, and as marketers know, and this is funny because I've studied marketing a lot as well, is we often appeal to emotion before reason, right? Mm-hmm. And in the order oh, yeah, of definitely. persuasion, and in the order of persuasion, what we typically do is appeal to emotions first. And then making an appeal to reason to support the emotions of the people already. So it's actually that's a that's a classic persuasion strategy. But it's and it's you know that's something marketers use. But as philosophers, we wanna we wanna do the opposite, right? We wanna start with reason first. And I'm not saying emotions or intuitions or feelings are completely invalid or worthless, um, but they can get in the way, right? They they are fallible. Um, so we wanna just you know, sometimes philosophy gets accused of being a little too cold and abstract, especially mm-hmm. on, you know, matters that bear in significantly on social or political life. But that's what philosophy is for, right? It's supposed to be cold and abstract because we're just trying to get a lot of the emotion out of it and just see the truth about things. So that's interesting you bring it up because from a persuasion and marketing standpoint, 
uh, yeah, all the great uh, rhetoricians will often tell you the order, uh, uh, you know, of 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 how you go about making a a, a persuasive a persuasive case is usually usually you appeal to one of two things first, which is either your own credibility or status, and or another person's emotions. And then mm-hmm. you bring in whatever appeals to reason you need to already support that, right? But that, of course, could be complete sophistry. It doesn't mean that it's true, right? Mm-hmm. It's just trying to get somebody to, to, to move or swipe their card or something like that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the classic example that you always, you know, look when you look at any, like, basically mainly commercials, it makes me think of. It's either, like, fear or sex that they use to sell things. Like, oh, this is going to help you attract women. And it's not always, obviously, in those words, you see a car commercial and there's beautiful women or, you know, you watch the news and they try to pump you with fear. Right. Yeah. And, you know, hey, you want to feel powerful. You want to feel sexy or, you know, whatever. Right. These are these are inclinations that we all have uh, to greater or lesser degrees. Um, and then what do they do? Well, then they usually say, well, you can have that if you buy our product. and. Mm-hmm. Here's why our product is good, and then it's usually just a bunch of BS. Because at that point, people are in a position to engage in motivated reasoning and rationalization. So as long as they think that there's reasons behind it, it almost doesn't matter what the reasons are. They'll just buy it no matter what at that point because you've already made a strong appeal to emotions. And it's like you, you, they've done the work to make you feel like, oh, I came to this conclusion. I made this decision where really it was subtly, you know, you're prodded to make the decision. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that is another, um, yeah, uh, barrier to truth. Uh, marketers, <laughs> right? marketers, and advertising appeals to emotion, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think what's been interesting about the conversation so far is we have not mentioned anything specifically about health and fitness. But if you think about this stuff in the context of health and fitness, it's everywhere. Um, whether someone's trying to sell you a diet plan or a supplement, it's, it's the same sort of stuff. Uh, oftentimes the best marketing, unfortunately, is what people are going to feed into. So bad diets like keto, fasting, supplements, fat burners, you know, whatever else sort of things that are much less effective than just learning principles to use for your life. Right on. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, look, who wants to take the longer, harder road to something? Mm-hmm. I, I typically don't, right? Um, so when, you know, the, the quick and easy road is, is promised and it seems like there's reasons to believe that a quick and easy road is, is available, of course people are going to be attracted to that. And that, that pretty much sums up the fitness info mar- you know, marketing business right there, right? That's, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like uh, this other quote that, I had to dig up by Charlie Munger. He said, "Markable how much long-term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent." Yeah, Munger, uh, obviously famous financial dude, great generalist, and he's absolutely right. Um, you know, I I think that uh, people should should understand the value of just not believing false things, even if you can't discern exactly what the 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 you know the truth is in any particular situation and consistency of the principles. I mean, that's the name of the fitness game, right? Um, you know, I sometimes get, get some flack that I'm kind of like the ACDC of the fitness world. Mm. And the idea there is like every ACDC album sounds the same. Well, every time Pat Flynn talks about fitness, it sounds the same. 
And if that's the if that's the greatest criticism I get, I guess I'll take it, right? Because mm-hmm. one, I love ACDC, and and two, I hope I'm just being consistent with the advice yeah. I give, right? And the principles. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, just wanted to mention real quick: if you're listening right now, you qualify as a podcast listener for a discount on my coaching services. My coaching services are for people looking to sustainably build the fittest and healthiest body they can. I offer custom workout plans as well as specialized nutrition advice and keep you accountable with weekly check-ins and actionable challenges. There's a money-back guarantee if you're unhappy at any time, and there's no commitments. So please check it out. The link is in the show notes. So uh, I think another thing that's interesting to me that, that came to mind that I wrote down here about, like when you talk about truth, is that one of the things that have changed my life the most, starting to meditate and figuring out and thinking about how that plays into knowing that your impulses and your emotions and your thoughts and feelings aren't always to be chased or to be believed. Where where does the intuition fit in? Yeah, so just a, a mark about intuitions. Um, my feeling on intuitions is, depending on the situation, um, they're not the last word, but they might be the first word. Right. Uh, we don't want to just go on intuitions alone. So not the last word, but they might be the first word. Here it might be helpful to talk about the virtues and go back to Aristotle again. Right. So the idea of the good life, according to Aristotle, to hit this, you know, this sort of human excellence, flourishing, eudaimonia is a, is a term he uses, which sometimes gets translated as happiness. But I think flourishing or thriving, thriving is, is the better way to describe it. Involves following the dictates of of human nature, right? Understanding what human nature is, what it is tended towards. Uh, the technical term is teleology, right? That, that we're, we're agents that act for ends. We have various powers that strive for various ends. We have a power of assimilating nutrients. We have a reasoning power. And we've been hinting at what the end of reason is. It's truth, right? Reason is by nature oriented towards the truth of things. And for Aristotle, Virtues are perfections of our powers. That's what virtues are, right? And uh, they're good habits. That's what that's that's ultimately what virtues are. They're good habits, dispositions that make the good at first accessible and then effortless, right? That's the idea. Is we get into habits or, or dispositions that make the good, whatever it is in a particular situation, at first accessible, right? But then hopefully effortless, right? Um, vices are bad habits. That's what vices are. Now, the reason I wanted to get into the virtues is you use the word temper. And temper is one of the cardinal virtues. So the idea of cardinal virtues are these are the hinge virtues, the four big virtues or the umbrella virtues under which we can have the, you know, a, a category, you know, many other different virtues that fall under those, those, uh, umbrella virtues. And the, uh, the four cardinal virtues are traditionally understood to be prudence, which is practical reasoning. And, you know, the idea of prudence is that it is a sort of um, experiential, it's a knowledge that's gained largely through experience, where in any situation that we find ourselves in, we are sort of just automatically inclined to make the best moral decision. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what prudence is about, right? So we, we call prudence the chariot virtue because it sort of carts around the other virtues, teaches us how to apply them in different situations. Because what might be courageous for me in one situation might not be courageous for another for a different person in that situation, right? Depending on, you know, depending on an assessment of my own abilities and what I can handle and, and somebody else, right? So that's not to say that there isn't like a true right or wrong, but we do take in uh, factors of 
of individuals, situations, etc. So that's why prudence is important. Then we have fortitude. Fortitude is just, I think a good common word for that is grit, man. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like we see the good, we know what the good is, and we're willing to push through challenges to reach it, you know, to persevere. Uh, that's fortitude. Easy tie into the gym with fortitude, right? Temperance, this is what you hinted at. This is when we have to use our reason to sort of guide and at, t- at times suppress our other appetites that, that sometimes want to overrule reason and would cause us to engage in behaviors that are really not good for us. You mentioned overeating. That's an obvious classic example, right? So we know, given an, our knowledge now about human physiology and the consequences of being overweight, although I don't think that we needed to wait until, you know, the scientific consensus in 2020 to know that people yeah. generally understood that this was, was just not a good thing, right, for a long time, um, right, that, okay, yeah, I need, to, I need to get some temperance. I don't have to follow every impulse, as you said, right? It's okay if I'm hungry sometimes. And also differentiating, like, true hunger from just cravings, stuff like that. That's a, that's a big one. Well, a lot of people chase isn't hunger. It's really just a craving. I mean, we're in a fortunate enough situation in society today that a lot of people don't really experience true hunger very mm-hmm. often, right? Um, so that's temperance. And then we have justice. That's the final one. Justice is giving what is due to whom it is due, right? Both to ourselves. A lot of people don't think about this. We have obligations to ourselves to temper, to, to persevere, to be courageous, right? But also to other people in society as well. Um, and I think that's, I don't know, again, if that's speaking exactly to what you're talking about, but I think that there's a wonderful number of tie-ins, especially to how fitness can help us. It can, it can help or hurt, right? So fitness can help us acquire virtue, but we can also do the good things for wrong reasons, right? If I'm going to the gym because I just, I'm prideful, narcissistic, I just want to look better than the other guy, and I'm neglecting my other duties, you know, I'm not taking care of my kids. Um, you know, I, I'm not employed. I'm not seeking meaningful work. I'm just bumming off of other people. Yeah, that would actually be hugely vicious and not mm-hmm. good behavior, even if I was doing otherwise good things. So intentions matter as well. But yeah, we can get into all that. I've probably said enough at this point. And it's, I think it's interesting how you talk about different powers that we have and having the opportunity to, like, we want to pick and choose our powers. And it's funny how I, I wanted to get into generalism so i think that will kind of tie in in a way if you are powerful and understanding how to maximize your health and fitness but then in other important areas of your life you are underperforming whether it be you're not financially healthy or you don't have healthy relationships or you know you're not paying attention to trying to improve the world in some way whatever you see as the, the most important thing gets all a balance yeah, so aristotle will just keep harping on aristotle here because he's got this idea of the golden Mm-hmm. And the golden mean, it doesn't always mean moderation. That's, that's a, a mistranslation or a misunderstanding. Because we don't ever like, there's some things we don't want even a little bit of. Like we never want a little bit of rape, for example, mm-hmm. or something ridiculous like that. Uh, the golden mean is just the idea that the virtue hangs between the extremes of excess and deficiency. So courage is a good stop, stock example, right? Courage is that sort of virtuous sweet spot, but, <clears throat> excuse me, between uh, the excess of being reckless, right, of just running into dangerous situations imprudently because maybe you like, you like the thrill of it, right? That's bad. That's not good. Um, but it's also, you know, um, not the deficiency of cowardice, 
of not being able to step up and do the right thing, even if it might be dangerous, for example, or, or threatening or intimidating. So that's the idea of the golden mean. Sorry, I need to grab a sip of water here. <clears throat> Apologies to the uh, to the listener for coughing in the ear. Um, so to your other point, yeah, I mean, everything you described is really just an extreme lack of prudence, right? Mm-hmm. It's a sin against prudence, we might say. Like the person who can't see that the good life involves more than just the amount of weight you can lift is somebody who's failing to comprehend what the good life is. So there might be other vices, but there's definitely a failure of prudence at that point to understand, no, I have obligations to my wife, to my children, to my to, to the people I pay my mortgage to if I'm not needing mm-hmm. that, right? Uh, to, you know, to social communities, right? So sometimes in fitness, you get people who are so obsessed with their diet um, that they can't even sit down and enjoy Thanksgiving dinner with their family. That's mm-hmm. not good. That's not a good, that's not a good position to be in, right? Um, you're, you know, at that point, there's, there's other vices that have crept in that, um, that significantly outweigh whatever virtues you've been accruing in that specific area of fitness at that point. So it's, it's actually, a, you know, it's much more delicate and subtle and balanced, I think. And we have to, and this is something that I've, I have had to learn as well, because I think like most young men, Jake, you're probably familiar with this, right? When I first started getting the fitness, it wasn't like because I was like deep into Aristotle and like I want to live a super virtuous life. No, it's like mm-hmm. I want to look good. Yeah, I uh, I think that what what comes to mind for me is like it's interesting how my view on food has changed over time. So when I first got really interested in like macro tracking and that sort of stuff, it had a huge impact on me because I never really understood uh, caloric balance and that sort of stuff before. And so this was at the age of like 22 or so. And then like over the last few years, because like I said, there was like literally a decade where I was just, it was just all this bro science and myths. And then I made this big step and Mike Matthews books had a lot to do with that, but I made this big step in understanding. And then from there, I started to have the um, proper, I guess, foundation of knowledge. And I could start to build my own constructions of understanding and thinking. And so now I'm at the point where, you know, it's the holiday season. And I understand more than I ever have before the benefit of the hedonic value of food and the fact that food is something shared among family. And I don't always have to be tracking and knowing uh, what's in the macros of this or that food. Sometimes it's just to be enjoyed for fun and to, to gather around. So I think that, but again, it's like one of those things where I can only do this without uh, guilt and without anxiety because I learned these principles and I learned this foundation of like, no food is ever going to wreck X, Y, or Z progress, or no food is inherently, you know, just going to be terrible for you upon, upon one, um, one day of eating it. And because I understand this stuff, I'm able to more easily let go. It's, it's almost paradoxical because I think less because I know more, I guess. Yeah, no, those are all excellent points. And there's a lot that I think can and should be said about that. One is, I mean, you're, you're spot on, right? It's just, um, well, let me let me walk it back a little bit because I don't want to say that like you never can or shouldn't make sacrifices for some mm-hmm. specific goal, right? That's not what I'm saying. Um, but there's a threshold, right? There's a threshold, and it's hard to say exactly where it is because it's going to depend on the person or the relationships and commitments in life. But there's a threshold that once you clearly cross that threshold, um, you've soured whatever that good thing was, right? That's what we're talking about here, and we can think of the person who can never sit down and enjoy a social or family dinner or holiday dinner 
because they're con- it's not like they just have like a figure one figure competition coming up that they've been training for it's no they're they're like they have an addiction right mm-hmm. they they have a vicious um attachment to certain dietary behavior and it's not it's not even discipline at that point because it's not right the disip- the hard thing for them to do would be to have the have the buttered roll, for example, mm-hmm. or something like that, right? So that's that. I just want to make it clear what we're saying and what we're not saying, because obviously you, you you can and often should make certain various sacrifices to pursue various goals, but there's thresholds that um, that that can be reached where you can you can turn the good thing bad, so to speak, right? That's that's what we're getting at. It's also important to understand that as as human beings, and you hinted at this, Jake, we're not just you know the traditional understanding is yes, we're rational animals, right? So that's that's kind of human nature, but we're also rational social animals, communal animals, political animals, right? So part of what is going to involve the good life, our flourishing, are those social interactions, developing virtuous friendships, fulfilling our obligations to other people, being just. So if you are just offending everybody, right, because of your annoying diet habits, Mm -hmm. um, that's bad. That is is bad, right? We don't want to be there. And I know because there was a point when I was I was there myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a good place to be. You're not going to find the good life in that. Um, so there's a balance to be struck, right? Yes, between developing discipline, temperance, striving for goals, but not crossing that threshold where you uh, either abandon or frustrate the obligations you have in other areas mm-hmm. for a good life. Right? Yeah, and it's like when I when I talk about um, health and fitness, I often use the word bodybuilding because that's most similar to what I do, but it's just kind of becomes complicated. And I kind of um, just feel unsure about it at times because I think that bodybuilding has such a stigma of like that very deliberate tracking and that food anxiety. And the interesting thing that I found is that I don't even think sometimes bodybuilders necessarily know that much more about food than the average person, but they just can really, really rigidly stick to a plan. And that's why sometimes you see these bodybuilders binge and put on 30, 40 pounds after a contest because they were only successful because they followed this very strict exact plan. And it wasn't because they had this knowledge. And so in in a lot of ways, they're not any more free than the person who is on and off fad diets, who gets in shape and then loses it and then gets in shape because they don't understand the mechanisms that go into it. So again, I think that's why I think it's so important, like especially when I'm working with my clients, to educate them, not just, hey, eat this instead of this. It's eat this instead of this because of these reasons. You know, eat more protein because you're going to feel more full and it's going to help you retain muscle. Try to eat more complex carbs because it's going to help you um, feel more energized, have better bowel movements, be more full, X, Y, and Z, you know? You know, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, Jake? I mean, some people just have an amazing, what I call dumb practicality. They can just... Somebody can just hand them a plan, hand them mm-hmm. a program, and you're absolutely right. They can stick to it. They can get great results and really have not increased in knowledge or understanding, right? They may have gotten information, but not necessarily accrued in knowledge or wisdom or anything like that. I'm looking at my guitar here. I can think of many music. I mean, mu- music is another good example, right? I can think of like a lot of really good, like famous musicians who just sat and practiced their instrument, you know, made some songs, worked really hard. But like if you gave them like an AP music theory exam, they'd fail it. They'd mm-hmm. have no idea, right? But however, you know, you can think of the opposite situation too. Um, you have people that know all the ins and outs of music theory, but they haven't ever produced a single hit song, 
right? So that's very prototypical of like jazz, right? Like jazz back in the day, musicians were often famous for like, I could be getting this totally wrong, but like most of them had really no concept of like the music theory or of like the notes and different um, idiosyncrasies. It was just like they knew what good music was and they just jammed, you know? Yeah, some of them, right? And then of course the, you know, the theorists will try and analyze what they're doing. And it's funny because they'll try and like, uh, hey, yeah, he's, you know, he's working with like a general mixolydian scale here or this. But mm -hmm. the guy who was playing at the time was just like, no, nah, I was just playing. I had no mm -hmm. idea what I was doing, right? Um, some of them were very accomplished um, theorists. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of jazz musicians who just, just went with the dumb practicality, went by, by ear, and also just went by trial and error. Oh, this sounds good. That doesn't, right? Without studying all the, yeah, the technical aspects of music theory. Rock and roll is probably an even better example. I mean, most rock guitarists probably know very little, um, if anything at all, about music theory in general. I mean, like popular level rock guitarists, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and they admit it. Um, so that doesn't, but that doesn't stop them from being popular or successful. But it doesn't mean like if I want to learn music theory that I would necessarily hire um, Angus Young from ACDC. Well, maybe mm -hmm. he does. I don't, I don't know enough about Angus, but you know, there's other guitarists that I know who are very successful and they admit it. Like, yeah, I can't read music. If you gave me a music theory test, I would plunk it. I just play and play and play and play and I hear other mm -hmm. people and I try to do what they do and, and that, right? So it's, it's just an interesting thing to think about. I don't even know where we're going with it, but uh, it, it you, you see it in different areas, not just bodybuilding, but music as well. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm very guilty of being like an armchair philosopher. I love, to, like, I can just talk about just almost seeming, like, seemingly things that don't connect. But I think that, like I said at the beginning, like to me, people that are interested in fitness seem to be interested in just like these really broad, well, what's the meaning of life? You know, what, how do, how do I tie this, this and this together? And for me, whenever I learn about like, you know, even a simple example like that, like learning about how musicians um, do or do not fall more into the practical theory side of things to me that that kind of goes to my brain and i'm like oh look how that applies to fitness look at the direct correlation and the reason that i see fitness as a vocation for me that i can really take through a large portion of my life is because it's not relegated to a, a narrow path it can really have so many different implications right and you know it kind of goes back to virtue too aristotle is emphatic about this right how do you how do you acquire virtue well, you don't just get it by reading his Nicomachean Ethics. You mm -hmm. live. You live, right? You practice. You do. You find virtuous people, and you imitate them, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, for me, it's a, for me, it's hopefully a both and, right? Because we want to we want to learn. We want to acquire knowledge and wisdom. But the good life, we are embodied rational animals, right? We're meant to do things, right? Mm -hmm. We can't not do things. So if you're just sitting around thinking, contemplating all day, yeah, that's that's great. Thinking, contemplating is good, but you gotta you gotta do right if yeah. you really want to thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a funny example I think I've talked about before. Um, I, I love the movie Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and so on that movie, he grew up on this island, isolated, and he had nothing to do but learn and study, and he knows all this stuff. But then once he gets thrown into the real world, he's almost like an idiot because he just has never applied any of these things that he's learned from all these books and teachings and if you don't apply it with some sort of experience, then you're never going to figure out what works for you or how to, you know, just because you have an idea means nothing if you can't put it into practice. Yeah, you know, that's not to, not to paint with too broad of a brush here, but that's not horribly 
uh, inaccurate when looking at some of the classical philosophers and say like mm -hmm. modern analytic philosophers in the ivory tower, right? When you, when you look in the classical philosophers, yeah, they knew a lot of stuff, but it was about living, right? It's about the good life, trying to acquire virtue. I mean, my, like Plato, for example, was apparently like a super good wrestler too and stuff like that, right? And now, yeah, and now you have people who are just doing a lot of logic chopping and uh, what I would argue is a bunch of nonsense in uh, academia. And it's very impractical. Uh, and it's just, there's this, this great divide now. Whereas, you know, to be a philosopher in the classical up through the sort of medieval period was really... Uh, you know, kind of to just strive for excellence, right? Mm -hmm. It was really to try and, yeah, to know everything about everything important, but also understanding that that living the good life, the moral life involves action mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. something that always struck me when I, because, you know, I kind of, my introductory introduction to philosophy was with, with mostly contemporary philosophy. That didn't quite do it for me. And then when I went back and really tried to revisit and study the, the, the classic perennial thinkers, I was just really so much more impressed by the way that they approached the philosophical project right because it was more lived right yeah mm -hmm. i really love ryan holiday and i i remember specifically he has this article that i read one time and i think the title was something like so you want to be a great writer well that's your first mistake and his point was just like he's like great writers don't just spend all day writing and writing and thinking and reading they actually have life experiences to talk about and touch on and that's what makes that's what makes the art of writing salient and makes it stick because it's through lived experiences it's not just accumulation of hundreds and hundreds of books read and conversations had it's through life you know well i think it was mark twain for example you know before he wrote a lot of his novels or in between i forget the exact datings he has the most hilarious travel writings but part of what makes them interesting isn't just his great humor it's just the experiences right mm -hmm. He just went around the world and just saw and did all these really kind of cool, interesting things. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of both, right? It's like if, if you're just sitting in a room trying to write, I mean, good, good luck, especially like, you know, like some of the, the greatest novels. Uh, in fact, I talked about The Matrix the other day. You know, it's a movie. It's not writing. But I don't know how much, you know, the writers of that movie studied philosophy, but they must have at least studied some because the whole idea of being plugged into the Matrix is like, you know, goes at least back to Descartes, you know, whether mm -hmm. the really whether we can know if there's an external world and this or that. And they just kind of took this general philosophical idea, this skeptical uh, idea that's been, you know, thought about for a long time. It kind of stays and, you know, uh, it doesn't always come down to the popular level. And they just turned it into a movie and brought it to the popular level. And people were like, that's amazing, right? Mm -hmm. They probably thought that the writers of The Matrix were the first people to think of something like that. But it's definitely not true. But to their, but to their credit, they, they, they were thinking about it, right? They must have been reading and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's both living, having experiences, studying. Because then when you sit down to, to write, you'll actually have material to draw from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that uh, the time flew by. Our hours already up, so I I I love to have you on the podcast again. It was a lot of fun. I think we have a lot more we could talk about, but I really do appreciate you coming on today and just having a very a very enriching conversation for for the listeners. Yeah, my pleasure, man. This was a blast. I know we didn't really come on with much of an agenda, um, which is always my favorite kind of conversation. To see where it goes, right? So I hope your I hope your listeners have enjoyed it and got something out of it. Yeah.
Um, well, do you want all everybody know where they can find you if they want to look uh, find your podcast or anything like that online? Yeah, sure thing. My podcast is called the Pat Flynn Show, and it is a generalist podcast. Uh, generalism, sort of the, the the theme that I I play on a lot with my brand, both in fitness and otherwise. So I've got segments on fitness, philosophy, theology. We cover all sorts of stuff. Have a lot of different guests on. Um, so yeah, the Pat Flynn Show on iTunes um, or wherever you listen, and then my website is chroniclesofstrength.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Pat. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. If you would, please take a minute out of your day to review and rate the podcast as well as subscribe. It would really help me out a lot. And if you're on Instagram, go ahead and follow me on there at jakeparker.fit and screenshot and tag me when you're listening to the show. I'll be sure to share it. And thank you personally on there.